invite Rick to come. Rick Prado, Director of Congregational Life. As Rick shared last Sunday, he had uh, two sermons in the making. And you can be grateful that he's learned much quicker than I do that, I, that there are two sermons in one. I usually just preach them both and keep you here for an hour and a half. But uh, he uh, knew that, and so it's my uh, joy to uh, introduce him, allow him to preach this Sunday as well. Thanks. Morning. Let's, uh, let's go before the Lord and ask him to, to bless this time as we look at his word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful uh, for the songs that we've sung, that our, our, your, our name is written on your heart, that we are yours, and this great message of the gospel. This great message that you have saved us is that which we come today to be reminded of and to rehearse, to sing, to come before you, our, our Father, and to to find in you all that we need to, to live out this next week, to live it in, in your grace and to live together as your people. And, and so, Father, this morning, as we look at your word, we ask that you would speak to us. We're grateful uh, that there's a promise that you will give us ears to hear, that you will break through the, the barriers that prevent this word from doing its work, that you would um, protect us from the distractions and certainly lots of thoughts in our lives and that indeed you would take and apply it to our lives it's living and active and so we ask you to do that this morning uh, thanks for this great hope we have in jesus name we pray amen if you to open your bibles to galatians chapter four uh i i'm continuing on the same passage we're gonna it's kind of part two kind of going around the the bend again on this except we're, we're going to draw on a couple other aspects but before I read, we're going to look at 4, 8 through 20. I wanted just to give us a little bit of backdrop again on, on this letter that Paul writes to the church, the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia, this region. As he writes them, you remember that he had come through and he preached the gospel. They had received it. Uh, they had trusted in Christ, the gospel that Paul had presented to them of Christ alone. And others had come in and began to undo that work, to undermine it by adding the law back in, adding back in things that, that they would do to add to Christ's work. Uh, stipulations of the law, regulations of the law, especially circumcision, a variety of things that would be added back then. In addition to Christ, and Paul is writing to them to warn them, to say, if you do that, you nullify the work of Christ. It's work in your life. It's work in your lives as a community that you don't have a gospel. You don't have good news any longer. You have bad news. And nothing really is going to grow of any substance, anything that's going to be vital at all. And so he's writing to them to warn them. Talks, reminds them of Christ, justification being primary. And then adoption, he gives them a picture in the first part of chapter 4 there. This high point of the gospel being that God intends, through justification, to adopt children. To bring children, to turn them from slaves into free sons who would be worshipers of him. And so and then as we come to this place in our, in our section, we're looking at it through the lens of verse 19. But Paul, there's a shift in the, the tone of it and really the content. And it's an interesting kind of place in this, in this letter. We're going to try to work our way through this as we think about what it means to have our lives formed in the image of Christ. So verse 8, we'll read 8 through 20. This is God's word. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature or not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves 
you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn to despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you, about you. As we're, as we're looking at this, we're asking the question about change. We're asking the question, is, what does it mean really to, to see change take place in our lives? Certainly, you don't have to be a, a Christian to want that. You don't have to be a Christian to want to see change, to have some sort of self-improvement. But the Christian has a different lens. The Christian has a different kind of reference point when we think about change. Certainly the world around us and this time of the year is the the time that you can look at ads and you can tell what kinds of things are being pushed that that people have an interest in self-improvement and in changing their lifestyle. And so you see things like organization as a part of that or health or body improvements or or relationships or financial planning or education, a variety of things that provide kind of a, a lens to think about change. How do we need to change? And so the world says, these are good things. And there's nothing wrong with these things. These are very good things. Certainly things we want to be, to consider, but the Christian's, Christian's lens is different. It's not the same lens. When we think about change, instead of just adapting what everyone else would say, what the Christian lens gives us, what the image it gives us is Christ. That as we think about our own change in our lives, that the, the central figure, the cent- central form is the person of Christ, that our lives would be formed to him, that it would be in some way it would appear to be like him, not certainly on the outside, but on the inside that would work its way out in the way that we live. So there's a different vision, a different pattern that's given here that we have. And as we see that form, okay, the world says, okay, here's good things. And it oftentimes are superficial kinds of things, but what God says, what really needs to happen is a much deeper kind of change. The transformation needs to happen in us is beyond what we could imagine. It's much deeper and more profound than anything that we would come up with on our own to change from the inside out and reveals this is what God desires to do in and through the gospel beyond just a merely external cosmetic kind of change that needs to take place in our lives. And so as Paul writes to them, as we look at this passage through this lens of verse 19, where he talks about his desire for them being that Christ would be formed in them. We see there an image, his, his heart for them, this, this sense of labor is this imagery, this childbearing imagery that he holds and then places them as the subject as well. That He says, I am again in the, the pains of childbirth. I am I'm waiting until Christ is formed in you. And that, that the second time now, I've preached the gospel once and now I'm preaching it again And I'm wondering what the outcome is going to be. I'm hopeful on this. That's why I'm writing to you. 
but that he himself is waiting to see what the outcome will be. But his desire for them, his desire that what would take place in their lives is that this labor would be transferred into Christ being formed, that his labor would be turned into Christ taking over their lives and that they themselves being grow, growing up and growing in that image. And so what Paul does is he think, we think about change or this formation is that he wants to connect, and for us it's important, to connect the gospel that he's preached to this life change. That practically speaking, what is it that this instruction that he's given on justification, this instruction that he's given on adoption, what is the practical outworkings of that instruction? What's the, where the rubber meets the road, what's the outcome of that? Well, the outcome is that Christ would be formed in us, that we would take on that image, that there would be a transformation that takes place in our lives, that indeed to be justified, to be adopted, to experience that in reality is to find that change going on in our lives throughout day in and day out. Maybe not as visible to us, but there's a reality there that he wants them to see. He doesn't give them formulas. He doesn't necessarily give them a 12 kind of step here to see this happen. But he says, if you understand the gospel, you believe it, and you live in light of it, you can expect this process to take place. And that's what we're trying to work through last week and this week is to, to wrestle through how is it the gospel does that. And I was... At the end of kind of working through this, I was not exactly pleased with where I ended up. I wanted more practical, but there's some important points that he gives us. And in fact, as he moves on in the book, in this letter, he's going to give more for us. But the phrase that we're using, I used last week, will continue to use for us as we think about change in Christ's formation is this, is that the gospel is the power of God to form Christ in us. The gospel is the power of God to form Christ. Christ in us. Now, the gospel is more than that, okay? The gospel is an incredible story. It's a picture of what God is doing in the restoration of all things. But as it relates to this passage, we see this. He says that this gospel is the power to produce something in your lives that nothing else will produce. And that's Christ. Only the gospel will grow what needs to be grown in your life, and that is the form of Christ. His son, And so last week as we looked at this passage and we asked these questions, a couple things. As we looked at verses 8, 9, and, and 10 as he said that the gospel is the power of God. It's God's power. It's what he has done. And we saw there that God is the primary knower. That God, he says that now you've come to know God or rather to be known by him. And to be known by God is to be in a relationship with him. And it gives us the basis of knowing something about him. And the gospel that, that, that Paul preached where the gospel of the God who's primary, the gospel is the God who is the knower. And out of that, that our lives are changed. By virtue of being in relationship with him, we have this transformation that takes place that we, as we are known by him. And that song we sung about his name being, our name being written in his heart, in his heart is this picture of the God who knows us in transformation that comes and the great rest we have by going, oh, he knows me. I can know that he's at work in my life. Whether or not I happen to, to know something right now or the knowledge I have might seem at this point deficient or insufficient, but the fact that he knows me. And then the, also Paul emphasizes the gospel is, is God. It's a power versus our power. It emphasizes what God does versus what we do. He says in verse 9 that these elementary principles of the world are weak and worthless. But they don't contribute anything to our status with God. They don't contribute anything to our, our, the formation of Christ within us. And Christ 
echoed this or provided a foundation for this teaching in John 15, 5. When he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that will bear much fruit. For apart from me, apart from being connected to this relationship with me, being in the vine, you can do nothing. There's nothing that can come. And so Paul says, our efforts are weak and worthless. The power of God is that which actually conforms us to his image. And if it's left up to us, if we think that we're responsible for now for this formation process, for this change process, we'll find we'll put sin into manageable categories. We'll think we can, we can deal with it ourselves. And we'll misunderstand what God is up to. We'll reduce his process, his plan, down to something that we can manage, something we can do. And in Paul's context, as he speaks to them and to us, the deficiency of legalism is that it, it places the ultimate responsibility back in the, in the hands of man. And if we do that, if that's done, it un- underestimates the transformation necessary. And it puts sin and this life change, this, this uh, reformation project in our own lives, it, 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 help, it, it keeps us from understanding God's full intentions there. It makes it manageable for us. And so that's what we looked at last week. And as we look for, there's, there's two areas I want to look at, again, as we think about the formation of Christ in us. One is the necessity of the relationships, the community. And the second is the context are asking the question, what's being formed? Okay, and I hope they continue to answer the question, how does that happen? Okay, no formulas here, but again, connected with the gospel really looking at 12 through 17 through 18 and 19, this section here. It's interesting and helpful for us. In verse 19, when Paul writes, he says, My desire is that Christ would be formed in you. Many have observed that the you there is plural. That the the you in that section is a plural word. And, And you, of course, he's speaking to many, right? Not just one, but it's a plural pronoun. Christ will be formed in you. And so the question is raised when we ask the question, as he speaks of this formation of Christ, does he mean you individually or you corporately? And is this formation project just about individuals or is this something to do with a corporate aspect of this formation? And of course, the answer is yes. The answer is it is both. That the, the formation process in our lives for Christ being formed is and involves something individual in each of our lives as he speaks and addresses our individual situations and needs and temptations. But it's a corporate one. And it's inseparable from being in the context of relationships. It's dependent upon relationships. And so individual, yes, corporate is necessary too as we see this. As he writes to them, I think it helps us as we think about the relational aspect, the community dynamic of this process that helps us understand even this whole section. This whole section where Paul slips kind of out of his theological mode and into this relational one and he starts to talk about his relationship with them and the backdrop of their relationship and how it was formed and all of that. And in this section, we find this, this, he shifts from these theological arguments to this. And in verse 12, we have this kind of entreaty as he appeals to them There we have this. He says, brothers, we're in a relationship with each other. I I entreat you. I call upon you. Become as I am. What's interesting is this is the first command in the letter. Okay, with two-thirds in the letter now, it's the first imperative. It's the first command. And what is it? Be like me. Be as I am. It's a relational command. 
live as I've lived. And what's he mean by that? Be a short, balding Jewish guy? Is that what he says? Is that his point there? No, his point is be as I am in the sense that I've abandoned anything else as a basis for righteousness. I've given it up even though I had a leg up on anybody else who would say that they obeyed the law because of my strict commitment to it. I've given that up. Be like me in the sense of abandon that to abandon myself to Christ. And if it's not faith in Christ, it's nothing else at all. So his command of them is in the context of a relationship. It's about be like me, is follow me in this way because I became as you did. And then he gives this description of how the relationship was formed. And you go, why, why are you telling this, Paul? Why, why do we have this? It's because of a bodily ailment. I come to you and I preach the gospel to you first. And I was really sick and it was a trial to you. And, you know, you, but you received me and you received this message of me. And then, and then and you would do whatever it took. You would gouge your own eyes out for me. And you, Paul, what, what's the point here? Why are you telling us this about this relationship with them? What's, what's the point the point is that it's in the context of this relationship. He says, you received me. You received me even in these conditions of which I was sick. And lots of speculations as to what exactly was the, the uh, ailment. What did he go through? Not sure exactly. But the point was, it was this sickness. It was this illness that drove me to you. Providentially, God saw fit to use my sickness, my ailment, to bring me in relationship with you and to be able to preach the gospel to you. And your reception of me and your reception of this message that I brought, the way you treated me, was evidence of your reception of the gospel. So there's this kind of intertwining here of relationships, accepting of Paul, caring for him, treating him well, and their acceptance of the gospel. That was evidence of that. And he says, I want you to see this, that the gospel is inseparably connected with relationships. It's bound in within those relationships. It's seen as evidence within those relationships. And certainly there is, and the rejection of Paul is the same. He says, am I now your enemy because I'm telling you the truth? There's just some sort of rejection that's taken place. And he says acceptance of him is acceptance of the gospel. Rejection of him in this case because of the nature of this relationship, it's rejection of the gospel. And certainly it's Paul, right? That's the apostle of the Gentiles. So there's a uniqueness there to some degree, but we all feel that kind of thing, that the relations that we find ourselves in that are bound in and around the formation of Christ, around the gospel relationships, remind us of that. And maybe we've been in those kinds of relationships where one has walked away from the faith, and all of a sudden that relationship becomes strained. All of a sudden we feel it. And they feel it. And all of a sudden, there are those who don't want to be around you. And I can remember a number of people in my ministry with, with crew, with Campus Crusade, with students who would kind of embrace this and then walk away. And they wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. Now, there might be other things related to that as well. But it certainly had something to do with the gospel that's there. That our relationships are part of that. It's reminders and they're so associated with this gospel in that. And so it should intrigue us when we see this binding of relationship to gospel that in the middle of this theological argument that Paul shifts gears and now appeals his relationship as a basis to understand how this whole thing works. The necessary relational communal dynamic of the gospel and the way it operates in our lives. And so I want to take just a minute to look at this because the basis of the relationship is that their acceptance of him was evidence 
and the true of this gospel that they had received and that the formation of Christ in them is individual, but it's necessary that it's a part of a, a community of people who are committed to this, these things as well. An author that I've appreciated over the years is a guy named Leslie Newbigin, and he's written a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. But in that, in that book is a chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters in the book. It's entitled, The Congregation as a Hermeneutic of the Gospel. The congregation, that's a big title. It's the congregation. What he simply means is this. The congregation is the interpretation and it's the application of the gospel. The congregation gives a picture. These relationships give a picture of what the gospel is and what it means and what it does. And it's embodied in people, the way they treat each other, the way they treat others, the way they live in relationship with each other is a hermeneutic. It puts on display, it manifests this thing called the gospel, and it's inseparably connected to the way that those relationships are formed and the way that those relationships grow, and they, they display this gospel of Christ that's there. And there's a variety of ways that we can address this implications of this truth, that this power of God is the, the this gospel is seen in our relationship with each other, but the one I want to kind of look at here has to do with this through the lens of Paul's experience with them and their that, that God has seen fit to providentially weave into our community the needs and opportunities which by the power of God and the truth of the gospel will form Christ in us. That God has providentially seen fit to weave into our community, into our relationships, the needs and the opportunities in which Christ will be formed within us. That Paul looked at his experience, his providence that drove him to them and their reception of him as evidence of that. That the needs that are there, the needs that are real, the opportunities that we have give us an opportunity to display the evidence of the gospel that's there. For Paul to see that, see the community is the location, the primary location, the primary means by which we will be changed. The community, this congregation, and by that I don't exactly mean grace exactly, I mean the worshiping congregation, those who follow Christ, those who adhere to the gospel, those who desire to see Christ formed in them together is the primary place. It's the location, and it's also a part of the means by which Christ will be formed in us. That's how it happens. It's the place and the means to some degree. Is it the only place? No. Is it the only means? No. Is it a primary one? Yes. It's a necessary one. It's an important one for us to understand. And what that means for us is that as we meet the needs of others, as we make our needs known to others, as we receive help from others, as we give help to others, as we encourage some, challenge some, admonish some, bear the burdens of some, go on down the road. As we do that together, what's taking place there is that we're putting display the gospel. It's seen of what it is and what it means. And, and what's happening is it's giving evidence to what we believe, evidence to each other, evidence to the world around us. But at the same time, it is a formation process for us. As we trust that God's using this process, we use uses the needs and opportunities that we have to bring that about in our lives. That Christ is being formed in and through that. The power, the gospel is the power of God to form Christ in us. Now, if you'll turn with me real quick to Acts chapter 2. There's a, a description that, that Luke gives us in this. And it's funny. It's interesting. As a church is formed here, there's a couple of really 
significant passages where Luke shifts out of kind of the narrative of what's taking place, and he gives these summaries of a description of what's happening in the church, what's taking place. And in chapter 2, verses 42, through the end of the chapter, he gives us, we've just seen Peter stand up and preach his sermon, 3,000 come to faith. There's an incredible thing that's taken place here. And then Luke gives us a description of the church, of what's happening. And they, that's the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, and to breaking of bread and prayers. And all came over every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing them to, uh, the proceeds as all as any had needed. And day by day, attending uh, the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. Another question, why does Luke give us this picture? Why does he give us this little description of the church? What's he doing there? He says, I want you to see the evidence of the gospel at work. 3,000 come to faith. Peter stands up after rejecting Christ three times, gives this incredible sermon, and I want you to see this. This is evidence. It's the, the location of, and it's the means through which this gospel is going. It's the means through which Christ is being formed in the church. And it's this necessary, necessarily relational. It's necessarily communal, and that's a significant picture for us as we see the power of God working in through his people. And so, how is that done? It's done as we do life together. It's done as we encourage one another, as we see needs and we meet them. Do we do it perfectly? You know the answer to that question. No, we don't. But the hope is that as we live in this way, as we seek to live out the gospel, is that God will, by his grace, enable us that this power of God would be seen in us and that Christ would be formed in and through this process. And certainly the gospel produces this in us. But then we move on and we see that the gospel forms something. It, it forms us through this relationship that we're in, in the context of the body, those who are seeking to, to follow after Christ. But the question is, what is it forming? And the, and the point here is that the gospel is the power of God to form Christ alone. See, one of two things can be formed in us, right? There's a couple of options we think about formation, really, in the Christian life. One is Christ. The other is not Christ. One is the image of God within us being formed and rebuilt. The other is the not God. It's an idol. And there's only one of two options for, the, for a person to go, what is being formed? It's either Christ, it's either him, or it's something that's not Christ, which is something other. It's one that leads to life, or it's one that leads to death. That there's a clear line of delineation, and, and either Christ is being formed or he's not. And the other thing that's being formed, if it's not Christ, will be something that ultimately destroys, ultimately defaces the image that's there, whereas Christ rebuilds that image. That the gospel grows Christ-likeness. Legalism, on the other hand, grows something else, grows something that we manufacture, something that we make. Something is always being formed in us, and the question is, what is it? To put it in another way, in a double negative, we're never not being formed. Throughout the course of our life, there's always a formation going on. In and out of each day, as we get up and as we go to bed, as we go to work, as we, as we live our lives, there's always a formation that's taking place in our lives. And the question, what is it that's forming us? What has the power, what has the, the influence to form us into its image? And we 
I've talked about this before. It's the things that we love. It's the things that we trust in. It's the things that we worship. Those have the power to form us, to, to make us, to form us in its image. And the gospel alone has the power to form us into the image of Christ. If you turn with me to Psalm 135. A couple passages and several places in, in the Psalms, we have a very similar kind of refrain. And that's where it talks about idols and a number of other passages too. But this one in, in particular has always struck me. Psalm 135, verses 14 through 18. Or 15 through 18. Psalmist writes, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Okay, stop right there. What's he just told us? These idols that are made have no power. They, don't, they can't speak. They don't have hands. They can't see. They have no power really. But do they have influence in our lives? Verse 18. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. Those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. You see, they do have power. That satanic power that the, that the enemy would take idols and use them to form the worshipers of those idols into that image and thereby deform and deface the very image of God. That as we worship anything else, as we love anything else, as we trust anything else, that thing has power over us to form us in its image. If we're trusting it, it will form us. So if we trust in Christ, we look to him, we seek to love him and find that he is the place we land, we'll be formed in that image. We seek to trust anything else. We find our loves being cast at anything else, then it will form us. A couple weeks ago, Bill talked about from Proverbs chapter 4, about guarding our hearts. Why do we guard our hearts? Excuse me. Why do we guard our hearts? Because the minute they take a hold of something, our hearts are formed around that thing that we love. And so anything that we love, anything we trust in, has that power. I would say demonic power to transform us, to change us, whether we realize it or not. One of the more profound images, I think, in during the last decade, the last century in literature and in um, last decade, at least in, on the screen, is in the Lord of the Rings, is in the character of Gollum. You might know the storyline. It's a powerful picture of a tragic character who's really transformed, deformed from a hobbit into this creature is pathetic whose lust and drive for this ring is precious, even the way it's depicted in the book and certainly in the movie as well. It's a sad figure who, whose life is shaped and formed by his love for something else. He wants it, and he'll, he'll do whatever it takes to get it. That it so much so is deforming, he can't even see what's done to his own life because of that. It's a powerful picture for us what our loves for something besides Christ will do for us ultimately. That it will destroy us. It will deform us. It won't form Christ. It will deform us. It will form us in an image of something else. It's there. Many of us know people. We have loved ones whose lives have been ravaged by the illicit loves of other things. To find their lives, even many of us have tasted that as well, to find our own lives affected by the love for something else, to be formed by that other thing, to take the shape and the form and to find ourselves thinking about that and giving our time and our energy and our money and 
all that we have to that and giving up things that are valuable and important for that thing. And so we see that. That's what takes place. It's a satanic battle. There's a real battle going on here that's real. We don't have time exactly to unpack it all, but you can read through the book of Revelation and you see this incredible picture, this battle. The battle lines are drawn and God on one side and Satan on the other one. And everybody falls under one category or another, one side or the other. And in the middle of the book, in verses 13, or chapters 14, 13, 14, there's an image of a, a counterfeit to the triune God. There's a dragon and there's two beasts. And it reflects, it's a counterfeit to God. And in these beasts, the beast who wants to, by power, form people into its image and through deception that's there, we see a picture there of a beast that wants to take those who would follow it, those who would worship it, and form those who would worship him into their image. So much so it talks about them receiving that mark. The mark of the beast means that those who worship it, who seek after it, are formed in that image. And this beast is a picture of power, and this is what happens when power is extracted from God. It's taken from the right primary source, and it becomes destructive, not creative, not productive, but it becomes destructive, and then we see that instead of truth, there's deception that's there. And so we have this image in Revelation of this demonic force. It's real, satanic strategies to conform people to its image through power and deception. And there's a prostitute that's a picture of this as well, calling anyone to sell themselves to get what they want, to offer what it would give to them. And the whole point is to destroy the very image of God upon mankind. That Satan, that's his desire, destroy and place upon them his image, which ultimately brings destruction upon them. And so we have this contrast between those who are marked by God and those who are marked by him. Those who are formed in the image of God, formed in the image of Christ, and those who are formed in the image of, of the enemy of Satan himself, that he would do that. It's interesting, this is played out in the church. If you read the first part of the book of Acts, you find in there this battle and the kind of the battlefield waging as the church begins to make its headway and people come to Christ, that in that there's, there's a number of ways that that battle line, those battles are, are described. And one of them is through the lens of, of, of the way and what people are filled with. In the book of Acts, there are those who are filled with the Spirit, and as Peter preaches, and as the whole apostle, the group as they are filled with the Spirit, they're characterized in ways that didn't characterize them before. As they're empowered, as they're characterized, the filling of the Spirit, they actually live that out, and they preach, and others believe and respond. There's boldness, so much so that, that Luke would take note and say, but those who observed them, those who saw them, what did they see? These people remind me of Jesus. These people remind me of Christ, that they were being formed in that image as they're filled with the Spirit. But then the other aspect of this is that there are others who are filled with something else, something that's not the Spirit, that's not Christ. There are those, the, the Jewish leaders who are filled with jealousy, and their desire is to, to have power over the people, and they try to, to exercise that, and they're jealous because of the power that Peter and the other are, are exercising, and those who are following them. And there's hatred that's there, and they hate. They're filled with hatred. There's also Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5, whose hearts are so filled with Satan that they would lie to God himself. Their greed and their envy to, to get a reputation that they didn't earn, they didn't deserve, to steal it, if you will, that they would lie, and they certainly bore the consequences for that. 
So we see that this image is placed, the form of Christ comes in two forms, those who are, are filled in this respect and with the Spirit and those who are not. It's the gospel that's the power of God to form Christ alone in us. Anything else that we trust in, anything else that we worship will ultimately form us into some other image. And this provides a great warning for us as well as a great encouragement. The warning is to be careful, right? To be on our guard. Why are relationships, why is community so important? Well, that can be helpful in the process of, of changing our hearts, of seeing what's going on in our own lives. We need each other in that respect to encourage and challenge and admonish and remind and, and warn. But there's great in, encouragement because what we can know for certain is that a God, as he knows us, as we find ourselves bound to him, we find it's not what I do, it's something that he would accomplish that he will form Christ in us, that we have this hope. It's, again, it's not us. It's what he will do, and it's the gospel. It's the power of God to form Christ alone throughout the course of our lives. Whether we see it or not, it's hard to see. It's hard to watch and see it, to know, is something happening? I don't know. I hope. It seems like I'm going backwards. We have a hope that he will. How is Christ formed in us? How, how does this happen? Well, having given exactly the answers, it's formed in relationship. Is formed as we worship and love him alone and to see that as necessary. There's not exactly neat and tidy answers here. In fact, I had written a whole section of trying to give some answers and then I said, I don't have time for this. But then secondly, that's, Paul doesn't give us exactly these neat and tidy answers. He actually just ties it back to the gospel and says, Christ is formed in you as you believe this. As you live this out, this happens. How? By being connected with the triune God, by being in relationship with him, this happens. By relationship with each other, that's how it happens. Is it hard? Yeah. Is there labor involved? Absolutely. Do we need to be in relationship and to warn each other? And yeah, absolutely. But there's hope as we move forward that the gospel is the power to do this. And I want to take, look at my time here, last couple minutes just to, to frame it real quick. We talked about change in this process of Christ being conformed in our lives. And I want to kind of drop to the, to the, 50,000 foot level or whatever, and raise them up and ask the question, what does it mean really? What, what's God's point here in changing us? What, what is his ultimate goal? What's his design? And I want to say this, it's not simply just to change us. Okay, the goal isn't, the end isn't just to, to change us for change's sake. The goal is something much more. I've already hinted at it throughout this message, but God's goal, his plan is the restoration of all things especially mankind. We know that mankind, that, that our, the image of God was broken. It was defaced in us. That Adam and Eve, as they sinned, that image was broken and that our enemy has come in to seek, to, to form now mankind in his image. But God, in and through the gospel, his desire is to reform, recreate that image within us that was broken to replicate himself now in and through his son. And so as Paul talks about the formation of Christ, it's not just simply about change. It's a picture and it raises our eyes beyond ourselves to see what God is up to. It's the restoration of all things, which involves, by the way, the transformation of our lives. But it's not committed only to that. It's all things. It's our own lives. It's our relationships. Ultimately, it's a new heavens and a new earth that's there. So the formation of Christ is, is to do that. Conclude with this quote. Again, C.S. Lewis says things in ways that can be helpful. Screw tape letters, 
as he as he writes if you've read this he's it's a it's a senior demon writing to a kind of a novice demon helping him know how to tempt and in this you have this kind of backwards view of how the enemy works but in it as he writes he's talking about the enemy in this case the enemy is god and the enemy is talking about the plans of god and he gives us this vantage point this is screw tape uncle screw tape demon writing one must face the fact that all this talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but the appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself, himself, creatures whose life on a miniature scale will be qualitative like his own, not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who will finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and overflows. Our war aim in a world is a world in which our father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him and yet still distinct. God's plan, his vision is to recreate us. We're not returning to the garden. We're going forward. And why does he do that? For what end does he do it? He does it for his own glory to demonstrate his power. And so we live now struggling through. And in the little glimpses we have of that change, that formation of Christ is evidence that God is able to do this. As we wrestle and work through this, as we labor by his power that's at work within us, we have this great hope that yeah, change can happen. This formation that he is doing in our lives can happen. But finally, it doesn't end here. The ultimate picture will take us beyond what we can see here and now. Take us ultimately to his completion of his formation of Christ within us. And the purpose, again, is for his glory. The glory of his grace. See, the gospel is the power of God to form Christ in us. It's in through our relationships. It's in our relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful this morning for this great message. Would you do that in our midst? Though not perfect, our relationships, would you form in, in our relationships this place and this means by which you will form Christ? Would you enable us to meet the needs of others and, and to step into that as well, Father? Would you protect us for the ways and the other things that would form us in, in Christ? We're grateful for this great promise, this great vision that it's not about us, it's ultimately about you. And someday we'll stand before you. We will enjoy this great blessing of this gospel, having and seen our lives being transformed because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.